Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is John Freeman. He is the editor of Freeman's A Literary Annual of New Writing and is the executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. His new collection is the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story, which is published by our friends at Penguin Press. John, welcome to the program. Hey, it's nice to be back in Quail Ridge Books. The last time I was there, Charles Fraser was putting out a book, and I sat in the back room as he signed his way through about 1,500 copies of it. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. Was that for... um for cold mountain or 13 moons there's 13 moons yeah nice nice yeah. I, I was in the middle of a period of fear of flying and then i took the train from from raleigh back to new york city <laughs> oh well, well hey that's not a bad train ride you know but you got some reading done i did actually yeah, yeah very good well um thanks john it's an honor to have you here and my first question for you is one that I've asked many authors over the last year and change. And that question is, how have you been doing this past year? How are you managing to negotiate this environment surrounding COVID-19? Well, as a writer and someone who edits from home, um, in many ways, the shifts of moving, you know, in, in many types of work from offices back home has not really been a dramatic one for me. Um, but obviously everything else has been a huge change watching uh, so many people around me get sick. I got COVID quite early on and mm. you know got better after about a month um, mm. and my partner did too. And, mm. and so we were, we were fortunate in that regard. Neither of us had to go in the hospital. Um, mm. And I think um, I've, I've just finished reading this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, mm -hmm. uh, which is about five disasters from the San Francisco earthquake mm -hmm. in 1906 to Hurricane Katrina. And she has this really wonderful historical research, which shows that people actually are quite empathic and, um, and, and invested in each other's well-being and have an instinct for mutual aid in this time. And I think, uh, you know, I've, I've done okay. I've done okay. Um, uh, but I've been buoyed mostly by that, by seeing the way that people and being participating and participating in forms of mutual aid that I think um, really we're working against the dominant narratives of our government at the time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's been a strange arresting and destabilizing time, but it's also uh, with all the grief and anguish, there's been some upsides of seeing the way that, we can live together um, and we can help each other in ways that, you know, was somehow not quite at the forefront of, of how I thought of living before mm -hmm. the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. I'm glad you recovered. And listeners, um, of course, you may know that Rebecca Solnit was on our show. And if you aren't familiar, you can listen to her episode. I believe it was from February, 2020, right before all of this started. Um, Thank you, John. Well, let's dive into this collection, The Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story. Uh, first, this question may seem elementary, but when I spoke of this book to a bookseller here at Quill Ridge Books, he said, modern short stories like modernism? Uh, and that's not what this collection is. Can you explain for our listeners what you mean by the modern American short story? 
Uh, very simply, it's uh, stories from 1970 to today, so the last 50 years. Um, and I chose 1970 in particular because for a long time in modern or recent anthology, um, uh, modern or recent short story anthologies, the 1960s is seen as the kind of er time for the short story of you know James Baldwin and Sonny's Blues and Flannery O'Connor and John Updike and John Cheever and other non-Johns. Um, and uh, that's all great. And it was a fa fabulous period, but um, I think the 1970s is even richer in a less obvious way, but in a more interesting way, because you see the emergence of a whole new range of black voices that were coming up alongside and through on her own desk at Random House, Toni Morrison. You see the emergence of Grace Paley's um, later sounds. You see Ursula Le Guin coming into her own um, you see Louise Erdrich debuting. You see Alice Walker sort of in the heyday of her short story writing period. Uh, so for me, um, starting there is a really is much more fruitful. And also socially, we think of the 60s as liberation, free love, you know, mm -hmm. fighting the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Act, Voter Rights um, Act. Mm -hmm. And the 1970s was kind of the hangover of that period and the, the pushback against it and the, the emergence of different forms of collective action pushing back on a government that was beginning to swing away from liberty uh, towards restrictions and new ways of restricting the vote of incarcerating uh, mostly black Americans. And so to me, that's a more interesting place to begin socially. Like what happens after the, the so-called party? And let's not forget, you know, the sixties, it took riots, it took assassinations. It took a lot of things that, that are truly rupturous to get white Americans to wake up to the um, very uncivil liberties that that lots of their fellow citizens and, and residents of America had to live with. Um, so I, to me, that it just felt like a, a natural place to begin. And so 50 years from that forward and looking at all genres, um, horror, crime, you know, fantasy together, because I think um, when you prize those things apart, you get a, you get a, uh, compartmentalized understanding of the richness of American literature. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, to build off of that a little bit, why do you think um, in popular culture and maybe in modern culture that the perception of the 1960s is so different from the reality of it? Well, the 1960s has had a great mythological machine, you know, mm -hmm. pumping out visions of hippie love. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, for all kinds of reasons that it would take another hour to talk about um, the, the sort of white culture uh, that emerged from the sixties was a version of, a, you know, several combining forces. Um, one of them was the notion of white saviordom um, that emerged, you know, that somehow the, uh, the forge of liberalism was made in, in the observation of black suffering in the South. And, that, that's a kind of brutal simplification of a very complex interaction between white uh, Northern liberals who came down to um, participate in um, uh, protecting the right of Mississippi blacks to vote in the summer of 64. Um, but that has been told and retold and, and, and it centered white characters. Um, and so in, in many ways, if to grow up white in America in a certain time period, like the one I grew up in in the 70s and 80s and 90s, that was sort of one of the, the stories that whites told ourselves, you know, 
that we were better because we recognized this and we were going to, we were going to beat and fight races, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which, you know, might, it might be, um, a, uh, a laudable instinct, but it, the centering of whiteness just creates the, the, the context for further forms of racism. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about the 1960s is, you know, the, the music that emerged from it, not just rock and roll, um, but the kind of uh, combinations of folk music and funk music that, that, that were traveling through the time period, um, they have a kind of image map of, of hippiedom. <laughs> you know, uh, of tune in and drop out. Uh, and, and, you know, if you read those books by Joan Didion, Slouching to Bethlehem, or, you know, um, some of the chronicles of that time, Hunter S. Thompson, um, you know, again, many of them written by white writers, uh, you, you it's far less laudatory than you remember mm. feeling like you read Slouching to Bethlehem and, and Didion hates, hates the hippies. <laughs> she hates had it hate Ashbury. Um, she finds it very indulgent. Um, and, so coming out of that period, I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering that um, it was not just a series of pleasures and victories and, and that by the end of it, um, we had Nixon as president, mm-hmm. you know, and a, and, a, and a Vietnam war still raging stagflation um, and the beginning, the a redoubling down on, um, on the sort of prison industrial complex. And, and that's not to say that joy and other things were not possible and not happening and simultaneously experienced in millions of intimate ways within people's lives. Hmm. But that's just the social context in which writing was being written. And, um, you know, I think the writers that emerge in the 70s are deeply aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, John. Um, a question about this collection as a whole, the Penguin Modern Book of the American Short Story. Um, is this meant to be bought and enjoyed by a customer that may come in and browse at Quill Ridge Books, for example, or is it intended to be taught in a university literature course or both? Absolutely both. Mm. Um, I read for this book about a thousand stories. And mm. um, after I had called from that into a group of a hundred or so, I started reading them aloud. And one of my main criteria was pleasure and enjoyment. You know, I, I'm not reading for a message here. Um, we've been talking about social context and sort of the threads of American life that filtered through and around these stories, and that's part of it. But primarily, a story has to grab you and compel you um, to read it and keep you there mm-hmm. and fix you with a voice or a tone um, or a series of images. And uh, so uh, when I was reading these stories, I... I wanted very much to 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 be transported, uh, enchanted, and uh, what's really impressive to me about some of this, this this the work that I read, the work that I put in this collection is just how you can do all those things and say something about um, the characters and the time that you live in. You know, so it opens with a story by Tony Cade Bambara, who I think is a uh, genius of of compression and it's about a group of girls um, or kids going to a, a rich Manhattan toy store on a, on a field trip led by their teacher who's it's called the lesson mm. and it's told in the, the this this character's young voice and from the very very beginning you know of the story you you, you open it and you can't you can't turn away um, and it's you know Back in the days when everyone was old and stupid or young and foolish and me and sugar were the only ones 
just right. This lady moved on our block with nappy hair and proper speech and no makeup. And, and like from, from, from there you go, you, you, you're in it. Um, all those, you know, that sort of lovely rhythmic compound sentence. Um, and, and Bambara was just a master of, of rhythm. And, and so, yeah, I, I want people to come in. The, the book has this quite ominous um, thundercloud pushing in lavender tones across a, an, a sort of plain field. Um, uh, but I, I want the book to, to, to sort of come at you and to make you not put it down. You know, and that's a hard thing with, as you know, with short stories, like you put them down, you kind of want to walk away and come back. And, and to my mind, it, the, the pleasures of enchantment and the pleasures of thinking are not separate. Absolutely. Thank you so much, John. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short moment for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with John Freeman. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with John Freeman, editor of The Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story. Uh, which is published by our friends at Penguin Press. Um, John, you were just talking about um, the short story by Tony Cade Bambara, and I want to return to that for a couple of moments. Um, Do you feel like the lesson imparted in the lesson is just as poignant today as it was in 1972 when the story was published? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the lessons of the lesson is not to to treat... um, people you're teaching a lesson to that they're idiots, but they know very much what they're being taught. And actually the lesson these kids are being taught is not here are nice things. Um, they exist and, and treat them with respect. It's here are nice things. You can't have them, but you can look at them. And that's the heartbreaking thing about the, the lesson. And it, to me, it seems a deeply American lesson because we live in such a culture of aspiration and commodities, you know, of the, if you get the right commodities, this is something Rebecca Solnit talks about. Mm-hmm. If you get the right commodities, if you get the right body, then you'll be happy. And everyone knows that's not true, but it's especially poignantly untrue when the lesson that you're being taught is that um, here are these things, but you can't have them. You don't deserve to have them, you know? And, and you know, we, we're living in a really economically violent time of this wide gaps between the super, super, super rich. I'm not talking like comfortably rich, you know, with an SUV. I'm talking, com- you know, exuberantly rich with your own plane, mm-hmm. you know, the top 1% of 1% and all the rest of us. Um, and I, I, to some degree, I see the debris of that uh, condition in these stories. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of sadness and a lot of economic precarity. You know, you, you feel it in the Raymond Carver story, 
you know, uh, which is one of my favorites of his. I, I could have picked any number one of any, any, any number of like six or seven of his stories that were just so great. But for this one, I took bicycles, muscles, cigarettes about a, uh, a kid who, who's had a fight over a bike and his dad comes over to adjudicate the fight and then gets into a fight himself. Mm-hmm. which I think if you grew up with a certain kind of parent, you've probably seen something very close to this. I know I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that's, um, that's very present in American short fiction is the child's eye view and not the kind of ultimate pure morality of the child's eye view, but the way that children look at the world, you know, with a lot of complexity. And, you know, you see that across this, this collection, uh, you know, whether it's in, in, in Carver or, um, to some degree, uh, you know, cause it's a younger brother and his older brother, Louise Erdrich's great story, the red convertible, you know, that's a big part of it. Um, Alice Walker's the flowers I mentioned, you know, you know, it's probably like 300, maybe 300 words, but it's just a, a simple little masterpiece, you know, and, and to some degree, George Saunders is this, uh, the sticks, uh, or, or just sticks. Mm. which tells a whole family story in about, again, 300 words. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you, John. I want to return for a moment to the question I asked about whether this anthology was intended for um, folks browsing in a bookstore or for academia. Part of my motivation for asking this question uh, is because in a past life, uh, as a graduate student, I taught a few sections of English freshman composition. And there are two stories in this collection that I taught in my courses, uh, Jamaica Kincaid's Girl and Dennis Johnson's Emergency. And at the time, uh, Emergency was not anthologized anywhere. I remember, um, and please forgive me, publishing overlords, I'm implicating myself here. Um, I remember typing this excellent story, Emergency, out in a word processing program and printing it out for my students so they wouldn't have to go purchase another book, uh, though many of them did end up buying Jesus' Son. Um, At that moment in time, I would have been so incredibly thankful for this anthology collection. Can you talk to us about this story, Emergency, by the fantastic author Dennis Johnson, and why you felt it deserved inclusion in a collection of modern American short stories. Oh, Jason, I'm so glad you highlighted this story. It's, <laughs> it's, I think it's one of the best story, American stories ever written, mm-hmm. as is Girl for a different reason. But the uh, one reason I can say that I, I love this story is as you were talking about it and describing it, I could, I could feel tingles going up my arm and across my back into my scalp. And the story is so good and so miraculous in the way that it falls through sentence to sentence that it, it just it feels balletic and purely pleasurable. And yet it's some, about something very sad. It's about two nurses, two male uh, nurses on a night shift at a hospital. Um, one of them is quite whacked out on drugs. And, and the other one is trying to participate with, um, among other things, uh, a kind of emergency surgery about a guy who has, an, I think he has an ax in his head. Mm-hmm. He's coming. And, and that begins a kind of unfolding scene of these, these two people who are barely keeping it together, trying to help other people. And that, that helping is one of Dennis Johnson's greatest, I think, themes is, is how to help each other stay alive, how to help each other stay sane. And these, these two characters have this, what feels like an epic night, but the story itself is only about 3000 words. Mm. And it, it just pours from one hilarious and sometimes moving scene to the next. And then they go out, they leave the hospital after they've gotten high on some stolen medication and are kind of driving through the night. And 
the, the, the narrator thinks he's having a hallucination because it's begun to snow and he sees these giant angels um, sort of striding across the landscape. Then he realizes that the, that the all night um, drive-in movie theater, uh, in spite of no one being there, is playing a film. Mm. And, you know, I think D Dennis Johnson is, is, is so many kinds of great, but one thing I think he is particularly good at, in addition to writing about helping, is just the trying to script the way that we are searching for um, uh, not transcendence, but some sort of communion with a higher existence, you know, and some people do it through drugs. They do it through, you know, extreme states of being, but also in many of his characters, it's a kind of, it's a religious quest, you know, and Johnson was um, un un undoubtedly a believer, mm. you know, his Christian Christian faith was really important to him as an individual. And throughout his stories, there are these moments of revelation where the, um, you know, the, the kind of angels that exist on earth kind of emerge. And that, that also appears in his novel Angels. But in this case, it's just another image of, you know, that the, that the pattern of us looking for angels is, is often most acutely rewarded when we look to each other, you know, that the angels who are here to save us are, are you and me. And I think that emerges from all kinds of experiences with addiction and recovery and group therapy. And, and, and in Johnson, all that is handled with such delicacy and humor. It's just uh, revelatory. I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that. And I, I just, my, feel, my hope for this book is that each one of these stories has that kind of intensity and clarity and purpose. And so that, you know, Jason, you might pick it up in, in Raleigh and, and find that story and find Girl, which is also a work of genius. But, um, you know, maybe a, across the country in Washington State, someone picks up Charles Johnson's story, China, and thinks, oh, my God, thank God this is finally in an anthology, you know, because mm -hmm. that's one that um, Johnson has rec more recently been anthologized mm -hmm. as his Girl, which is great. Um, but I, I didn't find any anthology with China in it. Um, and so that that confirmed my desire to put it in. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, listeners, as John mentioned, Dennis Johnson's novel Angels is also outstanding and is the um, predecessor to his prize winning novel Tree of Smoke. I recommend checking that one out as well, even though it's a vastly different novel. Um, John. It's very different. Yeah, very, very yeah. different. That's one of the best lines about prayer in it too. Oh yeah. I, I loved that book and it's a war book, but it's not a war book. It's, it's like a spy book and, and all kinds of different things. Um, just yeah. a fantastic, fantastic novel. Yeah. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, no worries. Um, a lot of folks who look to these literary anthologies, um, most of the time, someone who is involved with academia in one way or another may scoff at the inclusion of genre fiction uh, in anthologies. Not the professors here at North Carolina State University, I must add, who have always leaned towards genre fiction, um, with at least one member of their MFA faculty uh, teaching sci-fi, most recently John Kessel and now Cadwell Turnbull. Um, but why did you think it was important to include these authors and stories that may be labeled as genre fiction and authors in this collection? Well, they're great. I mean, they're, they're unequivocally great stories. Mm -hmm. Ted Lou's, uh, um, Ken Liu's story, uh, uh, you know, is, is one of the best stories about the way that you tell stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the you, you could call it fantasy fiction because uh, in the story that this kid who's being uh, 
sort of ashamed of growing up Chinese American as being given stories in the form of these paper menagerie uh, figurines that his mother makes, which in the story come to life. But um, to me, it was just a, it was a practically realistic metaphor for the way that stories we tell are larger than life. And in that story, the, the sad thing is that his mother's, the main character's mother's story is the one that's the most miraculous that he can't see, even though it's right in front of him. And you kind of, I think some journeys, some experiences are so outrageous, are so beyond uh, com our comprehension that you have to lean on um, forms beyond realism to to describe them. You know, there's a little bit of that in Tim O'Brien's Things They Carried, you know, um, it, because no one atomizes that much about what someone would put in a pack and carry through the jungle during the Vietnam War. Um, it's definitely in Stephen King's story, you know, the, the, the dune, um, which to me is, is you can draw a line directly from Poe to Stephen King. Mm. Um, and you know, the, I think horror fiction right now or fiction within the horror space is so interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, if this were a, 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 an anthology of the Americas, I would have definitely included Mariana Enriquez, who's a, Argentine short story writer who's created her own genre of horror fiction um, uh, with, with stories and collected and things we, um, we, we rescued from the fire and a collection that's just out called Smoking in Bed, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dangers of Smoking in Bed, yep. which is up for international impact. So to me, I, I, I think Ted Chang, you know, is science fiction, certainly. Um, but you wouldn't, wouldn't, either one of us want to know what a bird would say to us if it could, you know, to me, that's the one thing that we're not doing is listening to the natural environment. And so for me, there is no American fiction without dealing with and celebrating the various forms of genre of which literary fiction is one, you know, mm -hmm. we have to remember that. Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that book, um, The Dangers of Smoking in Bed. That's one on my list. Like I can mostly only read books that I'm um, doing a podcast episode for, but that one's sitting uh, on, on my bedside table waiting for a moment when I can get to it. Um, it looks outstanding. I have a couple more questions here. Uh, first, you write about Maya Angelou and Alice Walker visiting an after-school program in Oakland. Uh, and one of the students there happened to be um, our current vice president, Kamala Harris. This piqued my interest for many reasons, one of which is that we try to get as many authors into schools here in Raleigh as we can. Uh, and this is a two-part question. One, what do you see as the importance of these types of author visits to schools? And two, do you think without these visits that Kamala Harris still becomes vice president Harris? Well, I'll start with your second question because it cracks open the multiverse of possible mm. existences. You know, would, what, would we still be here in this present day without, without Alice Walker, um, you know, going to her, uh, her after-school program um, in, in the 1970s? Uh, I hope so, but I don't know. You know, the, the, the thing that, to answer your first part, I think the, um, the visits that, that writers make, particularly to public schools, you know, because private schools are often well-serviced by writers, writers, published writers teaching at them, teaching creative writing often. Mm. Um, but in public schools, you don't often have someone come in who says, I am a writer. This is my life. This is my job. It's telling stories, looking at the world, observing um, 
you know, paying attention to justice and injustice, you know, imagining worlds, that's my life. And, you know, when, it, when that happens, when you have, when you clap eyes on that person as a young, as a young reader, it changes you, uh, especially if you have an incipient desire to be that kind of storyteller. It lets you know that it's possible, that it's okay. And in fact, that you're needed there uh, out in the world in your future adulthood as a storyteller. So I very much, I went to public schools in California and I remember very well the, the writer who came to my school. Um, his, his, his whole thing was to make us write poems. Um, and uh, I've become a poet. And I think without that visit, was that possible? Sure, yeah. But I think it, it definitely made me think that the thing I was doing secretly on the side um, had some kind of value because it existed in the world. And I, but I think in, in the case of um, Alice Walker's visits, you know, I think this is especially true uh, of, for students who live in a world where they don't see a full panoply of possibilities of what they can be out in the world. Um, you know, now I, I think we're living through one of the great ages of black poetics. Um, and among other things, you know, this Kaveh Kahnem and foundations like them have created so many amazing um, writers, have nurtured them, they haven't created them, but they've nurtured them. Um, some of them write young adult and children's literature, you know, Mahogany Brown, for one, um, Elizabeth Acevedo another with the poet X um, and you know it, Jason Reynolds is another but he, I don't think he came through Kaveh Kahnem but the, the thought that those writers are out there going to schools talking to students makes me uh, immensely hopeful of what the future of storytelling looks like in this country because the, 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 there are more and more and more models of, of wonderfulness in storytelling um, and it's not expensive to send a writer to public schools. In fact, I, I know from my own experience and my, the little that I know from my friend's experience that going to a school to talk to students is one of the most rewarding things you'll ever do as a writer. You know, there are lots of days as a writer where you feel useless or you hate yourself. <laughs> what you're making is, is ugly and that's part of it. But when you go into a, a school and talk to students, particularly students, you know, 18 and under where they're still in the, in the ages of becoming, you know, and possibilities are still wide open and they haven't already selected their desires of what they want to be in the world through their classes. And it, it reminds you that um, there's a kind of generational linkage, you know? And so to me, the idea that Alice Walker helped cre create the imagination of Kamala Harris says so much about the way that, Writing is a social experience, you know, that writing doesn't just imagine the world we're in or imagine the worlds to the side of it, but it imagines the future world by imagining the listener, you know, the possibilities within that listener. And, and so I, when I put together this anthology, I wanted very much the, the, the book to reflect that, the possibilities of what America is and also what it currently is in terms of our demographics you know, who lives here, who tells stories. And one of the shocking things I found in putting it together is that, you know, most books of stories, most anthologies were 
looked like they had been made in 1950. You know, most of the contributors, or many of them, or a majority of them were men. You know, most of them were white. And, you know, there's still quite a lot of white people living in America. It's not, it's, that's not the issue. It's that should, should, a, should an anthology be 70% white? No, absolutely not. I'm sorry. You, you, you have to go out of your way to, to choose that kind of selection. And, you know, the, the, there's, there's no category uh, rule that you need to make to find greatness by looking for a diversity of voices. It's right in front of you. It's the obvious choice, you know, whether it's Jumbo Lahiri or, you know, Jamaica Kincaid, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Alice Walker or, you know, Ken Liu and, and Juliette Suka. I mean, it's those, their stories are, are phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, finally, I would like to say that we could obviously spend months talking about the stories in this collection, and I think many uh, folks out there will do just that, uh, but our time here is limited. I do want to ask you, you mentioned earlier you read thousands of short stories when considering the works to be included in this collection. Which stories were automatically in regardless of the other stories you read, and what were the hardest stories to leave out? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I didn't, I, I, when I put this book together, I, I created a list of possibles mm-hmm. and I would say two thirds of them did not go in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought these stories will obviously go in and I don't want to name those stories because it will make it sound like they didn't hold up over time, which is actually what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I went back to a lot of stories I thought I loved and I thought, wow, this, this is not the story I read in 1998 or 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you uh, about a few experiences of reading stories. For example, uh, um, Dorothy Allison's story, River of Names, is one of the earliest stories, which when I read it, I thought, if that doesn't go in, I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. You know? And it, it, it's a story of a woman telling a, a, her story to her lover. And uh, as she's going along, and she's had some terrible things happen in her past, she keeps kind of interrupting the story and, and turning to us, the reader, and saying, have I moved you? Have I... Have I, have I, have I made you feel in, enough hurt and pain? And it's a dazzling performance of the need for uh, the, the teller of the story to move the reader, but also not feel like they're um, burlesquing their experience or, or using it, you know, using it for entertainment, especially when it comes to experiences that are traumatic. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, crucial question. And, and Allison, you know, Bastard Out of Carolina is an unequivocally great book in my, in my yardstick. And as is, you know, in a, in a different way, Cave Dweller. Um, uh, but she's a great short story writer too. Trash, her book that I picked this from is an unsung American classic, I think. Uh, so that was one where I, I came across it and I thought, if this doesn't go in, I'm, I'm, I'm nuts. Um, and then, um, you know, to, to searching around in the book, um, you know, uh, I have to say, uh, Louise Erdrich's story, The Red Convertible, um, is another another one where I put it on my list. I thought this is this is a great story, and it was better when I read it again. Um, and I've read uh, her collected stories, which came out from Harper Collins, ten, twelve years ago. I've, I've reviewed a number of her books and published some of her stories. And I love, I love her recent work. I love her, you know, work of all different p- pages. And so I, 
I felt a little self-conscious picking a story that was from the very beginning of her career. But there's something about a, a great short story um, that is, is so high and tight and perfect in its creation. It's so wind, wind tunneled, you know, where you see nothing out of place, you know, and yet it feels loose and natural that making one yeah, a, a really, really, really great short story is, I think, rarer than a, a, a really good poem, a great poem, you know, because it has to tell a story and escalate and have images and, and sound like life. And yet it, it's a bigger piece of prose, you know, and because it's not a novel or a novella, it doesn't have the room in it to, to kind of create canyons of um, talk and, and, and exposition, you know, it's meant to, you know, reflect light rather than absorb it. Um, you know, and, and for that reason, I, <clears throat> I was looking at a lot of stories by people, you know, that um, often write 90% of a great story, you know, mm. and then two, three, five, a week, days later, you know, you find that you forget that you read it. And so what, what I chose to put in this book were the stories I couldn't forget, you know, where I wanted to talk about them to someone, you know, where they did something new and where I felt like they had done, you know, like done the equivalent of pitching a no hitter, you know, um, but in, in literary form. Um, and I'm just kind of, I'm in awe of what these stories do and the different ways they do it from, you know, Karen Russell's, you know, you know, story about the girls raised as wolves to, you know, Julia Otsuka's incredible heartbreaking story about, you know, a mother kind of losing her memory. Um, they're, they're, to me, 35, 36 kinds of, of genius. Absolutely. Thank you, John. I'm going to use that line about the no-hitter. That's fantastic. There's already been two no-hitters in this very young baseball season as we sit here recording, maybe more by the time this gets published. It's incredible. I, I just feel like, is there some sort of pandemic specialness in the in the air? I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. pitchers, since they didn't pitch a full season last year, are more rested or something. Who knows? Um, but it's been nuts. Well, Thank you, John. And thank you for putting this wonderful collection together. As I mentioned, I would have been thankful for this collection many years ago, and I'm most definitely thankful for it now. Listeners, I've been speaking with John Freeman, editor of the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story, which is published by our friends at Penguin Press. John, thank you for joining me. Hey, huge pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank John Freeman for joining me. Copies of the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story can be ordered from Quail Ridge Books. And if you're a member of Reader's Club Plus, you can get it with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.